Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing really well. I just got back from Montana. We took a family road trip out there to go see our oldest graduate from Montana Wilderness School of the Bible and enjoy the whole weekend there. We got to see where he's been going to church. We got to just meet some of his friends at the school and watch the graduation. It was so much fun. And then we hightailed it all the way back to Oregon. And I just got back like about an hour ago. So I'm personally just thankful to be out of the car. So how are you? That's awesome. I am doing pretty well. I I have to say, I don't know if anybody else will remember this, but in the first Hunt for Red October movie that got recorded when we were like in high school, okay, uh, one of the characters that was defecting from the USSR to the United States wanted to live, I believe, in Montana because he envisioned it as this like wild nature, beautiful place. And it is almost a magical place in my head because of that moment in Hunt for Red October. So whenever you have talked about that place where your son went to school, that is what has gone through my head every time for the last year. And I don't think I've ever mentioned it. That is so funny. Well, I don't remember that scene particularly, but if it is an accurate representation, they're not wrong. Montana is stunningly beautiful and very wildernessy and just amazing. The only thing you have to you have to be okay with wind, lots of snow, and driving for hours upon hours upon hours because literally nothing is near anything else. It's just so spread apart. Hmm. I am adequately dissuaded. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I would prefer my nature in small pieces, small drivable pieces. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> well, then, you know, just stay there in Missouri. I didn't want to change the, like, Josh from Montana anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't sound good. But uh, but you asked how I'm doing, and I'm doing uh, really well. I am so excited because next week we get to launch our conversation with poor Bishop Hooper. And then the following week, we get to launch our official Summer in the Psalms conversations that we have been talking about for weeks now. And I am really, really hoping that uh, a bunch of folks who are listening go to our social media look at the reading schedule, start to read with us, and then start to discuss what they're reading with us as we talk about the Psalms, either in our thoughts or in the main topic for the conversation for that particular week or whatever. But uh, I am just so excited about digging into the Psalms together and letting that inform our conversation about a host of different topics. Yeah, I'm with you. I can't wait. Also, in fact, folks out there can get a copy of the reading plan, not just from social media, but also in our show notes. And there's yes. there's going to be a link to that document. So grab it, download it, slap it in your Bible, uh, wherever you got to put it. I've I've actually downloaded it and like made it a shortcut to like the spreadsheet or something on my phone. So I can go into my little Bible folder and there's my reading plan and I can pull that up and it's super handy. And nice. listen to this. My oldest son taught me a little trick today. You probably all do this, but I didn't even think about it. He said, 
if you're going to use your Bible app to sit down and have a quiet time or follow along with a sermon or whatever, pro tip, turn on airplane mode so you don't get distracted by all the other notifications. That was awesome. Mm, that's a great point. And I'll be honest, I often have my phone with me in my time with God, and I have been getting really distracted lately by my phone. I am literally going to do that starting tomorrow morning because my phone is a huge distraction for me when I'm trying to spend time with God. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I don't know why I never thought to turn on airplane mode, but hey, thanks to my son. That's a great idea. Go him. Yes, indeed. So um, with the Psalms coming up soon, I'm so excited along with you. But what did you call about today? Well, I hope I can get this idea across because it's sort of a vague idea, but it's one that I have thought a lot about lately, and it comes up frequently. Whenever I'm reading anything by Eugene Peterson, I feel like this is a topic he speaks about or speaks assumes in his conversations, and it is the idea of our faith, our Christianity, being formed and influenced by our specific place and time. That is to say, the unique expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in Springfield, Missouri, is distinct and unique from what it means to be a follower of Jesus in Madagascar in the 1950s or whatever. Um, Sure. And I am continually taken by this topic because as Christians, we so often, and perhaps this is a unique North American expression of Christianity, but we are so taken by the universals. This is what it means to be a Christian. Let's figure out what it has to mean. What are the three to five things every believer has to say, think, do, feel, believe in order to really be a good Christian? We focus far more, I think, on the universals than we do on the particular expression the unique expression, and yet I find the unique expression of faith in a given place, in a given time, to really be something that, you know, building on our conversation from last week about beauty, I think uh, adds to the beauty of the global expression of Christian faith, that it has particularities to it. Does any of that ring true or make sense to you as you hear it? Yeah, it does. And I think about this a lot. And I think there's aspects of this that really excite me. And there's aspects of this that really, really scare me. And I want to start with that second category for a a moment, because I think the big theological word for what scares me is syncretism. And What I'm afraid that this conversation can lead to, doesn't necessarily have to, but can lead to, is approving the enmeshment of the Christian faith with cultural or other 
theological reflections from the culture and just saying, oh, these, it's fine. We'll just merge all this together. And that's, that's just as Christian as anything else. And yeah, absolutely. So I do think that as you started with saying there are universals, I do think there are distinctives about Christianity that are true in every single culture and in every single expression. I assume you're not saying, let's give up those. Absolutely. You're totally right. I, I, I remember going on a mission trip to somewhere in Central America uh, some years ago and seeing this gorgeous church cathedral that was painted with a host of the stories of the Bible, but interspersed with those stories of the Bible were very clear images of like ancestor worship and a number of native practices that the church in this particular area had intentionally incorporated into itself in order to make space for it to have a voice in the cultural context. And I, neither then nor now do I think of that as a great decision, right? Like mm-hmm. that's going too far. There have to be essentials, foundational things we all agree on. Though I think that we better be very careful since, for example, when I look at the various starter sermons, the various evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts, frequently they are not the same content over and over and over again. They are very different content based on place and local culture. Yeah, I think one of the easiest ways to see this is standing in our present moment and looking at generations gone by. And I think particularly just because it's such a distinct iteration of Christianity, we could look to the Puritan movement of which Jonathan Edwards is rather emblematic. And mm-hmm. uh, the the kind of Calvinist, um, you could describe this better than I can, but kind of the, the Calvinist Northeastern Massachusetts sort of expression of the faith. How would you how would you describe that? Um so I would say socially they were operating in a context in which they fully overlapped their spiritual worldview and their social worldview. So being part of the culture meant being part of the church. And those things were so one and the same that there was no distinction. They definitely believed that Jesus was God, and they would have argued that every particular that they believed was absolutely essential, right? Like, this is the culture that gives birth to Adniram Judson feeling like he has to renounce his support by a missions organization because he changes his position on baptism by immersion on the ship on the way over to China, Mm. um, on the way over to India, Myanmar, whatever. Where was he going? I don't remember. But those are some things that I think of when I think of Puritan faith. 
Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. And I'm sorry, I kind of put you on the spot there, but that is the water that they swam in. That's just what they knew mm-hmm. to be the faith. That's what Christianity was to them in their time and in their place and in their cultural moment. And we look at church and we go, well, church is very distinct from the community that I live in. It's a part of the community that I live in, but it is not one and the same with the community. Or I don't hold such strict definitions of baptism, or some of us don't, that we would feel like we have to renounce our position with an organization just because we changed our view there, or something like that, right? We have a different cultural moment, a different space. And I think it's easier to think of it in terms of time frame and, and different eras of the church. But when we start looking at different cultures, somehow or another, it gets a little wonky. And maybe that's just for me. I think particularly of that book that I spoke of during the our uh, review of the seminary books that I read, Philip Jenkins's book about the, the coming of Christianity or the next Christendom. And he's looking at the different cultural expressions of Christianity all throughout the world, but particularly in Africa, some of the cultural expressions of Christianity are very syncretistic in parts of Africa. And in other parts, I would say we have a whole host of theological agreement. And so there's this wide variety of expressions of the faith, and you start getting uncomfortable wondering, well, is it a good expression? Is it a right expression? Is How much error can we tolerate? You know, all of those things start crowding in my head. Well, and and the interesting thing underneath all of that is that somehow we believe it is our job to answer that question for everybody. Mm. Right? Like, in a way that feels like the awkward stepchild of white imperialism. Right. Yeah. I, it's still my job to decide whether or not everybody else is doing their Christianity right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, why is that? Why, at what point did that become every believer's job to do for all the other believers? Well, and I don't know if I feel that same way about my own culture. I think on some level I do. I get caught up in theological debates or points of emphasis or something like that, but it it has a different character to it. It has a different feel to it. I find this even having moved from Boston to Missouri, there are a number of ways in which I have to communicate my faith differently because if I said the same thing here I said there it wouldn't be understood the same way for example and I think this comes from a sense of reservedness or intellectual care or something that comes from the the Boston culture but in the Boston church circles in which I was a part they were passionately Pentecostal But if you were to explain your motivations for making a particular choice, you would 
functionally take responsibility for that choice by saying, I decided to blah, blah, whatever. And there would be an understanding that God was a significant part of that decision-making process, but there is a reserve to expressing one's relationship with God that makes it feel too showy to say, God told me to blah, 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 or God wants me to blah, blah, blah. And here, I find myself often having to translate out of that reserve in order to make it clear that a spiritual decision has been reached and that it is clear to me that God was involved in it. And I have to use language that I am personally uncomfortable with. I don't like saying God led me to whatever. That's not a native way for me to process my own relationship with God or to express it. But if I don't say that here, it sounds like I made the decision without involving God, which is not the, not the case. Does that make mm. sense? It totally does. And I'm with you. And I wonder if that's unique to, to us as individuals or to the coast life, like East Coast, West Coast kind of ideas. Because I similarly feel uncomfortable with that. I think in the same way that there's an assumption being made when you leave that out, right? When you leave that out, there's an assumption mm -hmm. that, oh, therefore you didn't involve God. I think by including it, I have made the assumption and stated it for others that I know the mind of God, that I am certain mm. I have heard rightly, that nobody can now question it, nobody can now tell me otherwise or give me other advice. I have spoken the words of God, and that feels to me in my ears presumptuous based on my cultural context mm -hmm. and the assumptions that are involved in how I use language. Yeah, exactly. And I, of course, I resonate quite a bit with where you would be at on this, as did everybody in the church circles I was a part of where I used to live. You know, and I think what's fascinating to me is there are people on both sides of that particular conversation, as there could be on a number of different conversations where they would say, this is the right way to say it. That way to say it is wrong. You shouldn't say it that way. I've certainly heard folks from Boston say that about the Midwestern approach, and I would imagine vice versa is also true. But is it okay on a level like that for us to say there are a host of right options and one of them resonates in one cultural context and another one resonates in another cultural context. Mm. That's so good. And I like your statement that there's a host of right options. I have to be really careful not to apply my sense of right because of my cultural lens uh, and, and apply that onto somebody else. And that is really, really hard to do because... We've used the word a couple of times now. These are assumptions. And so therefore, they're unconscious. They just sit in the back of our minds. We just assume this is how everybody thinks. This is how everybody experiences the world. So therefore, it's right for me and it's right for everybody else. And until that assumption gets challenged in some way, 
we often don't even have a, a, a moment to realize that we, we were even thinking that way. Absolutely. And this can have far more complex issues associated with it, I think, than just simple ones like I brought up. You know, you and I have talked a number of times about one particular issue that we live out very differently, but in a way that is mutually respectful, but that not everyone who thinks about this particular issue is willing to respect people on different sides of the issue. And that's the issue of drinking, particularly drinking alcohol, not drinking water or things. Uh, Generally speaking, (laughs) we as Christians all stand against the drinking of water. Um, (laughs) Of course. Yeah, that's why Jesus uh, turned it into wine. Yeah, exactly, because water is evil. Um, But, you know, I operate in a cultural context in which I have committed my life to working amidst people whose lives have been deeply scarred by an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And therefore, I am personally committed to not drinking out of solidarity with those amongst whom I worship and serve. You are in a very different cultural context from that. Yeah, this has been something that has been fascinating over the years with our friendship. Uh, Most of the time, we're on opposite sides of the country and can, you know, interact in our own cultural spaces in a way that makes sense to us. And so here in, in my part of the country, there's not that stigma typically attached to the use of alcohol. It's not as though there are some out here who would say that Christians shouldn't drink. But by and large, the circles that I run in don't have that expectation. And certainly non-believers don't have that expectations of Christians. And so it's a it's kind of like getting a coffee with somebody. It's it's a way of connection. And it's a, it's a way of meeting with people. And it's not necessarily binge drinking. It's just, hey, let's go have a, a beer after work or whatever. And so it's, it's a, a space to connect with people. And I value it for that reason. But I understand that's very different in your context. And when I join you in your context, I get to leave that part of me behind because it's just not appropriate in the spaces that you run in. Yeah, exactly. And frankly, I have come to respect your stance on this, ironically, far more because of your willingness to hold your stance on this lightly. I have brought up before, though not necessarily on the podcast, the moment when we went to Fenway Park together. You are a massive baseball fan, and having a beer at the game in the Fenway Park was a real thing for you. But, and I know all of these things about you, but you pulled me aside before we went to the game and you said, hey, I know you know that this is a big deal to me, but I want you to understand, I understand the context in which you serve. I understand that it's not appropriate for you to be seen potentially by parishioners or whoever with somebody who's drinking. That in and of itself could be confusing enough for somebody that I am more than willing to give that up and don't even wonder about it. I will not be drinking when we're at the game. 
<laughs> and I was really grateful that you were willing to do that because it was a statement of prioritizing our friendship over something else. And it was very significant to me and spoke volumes about the health of your relationship with alcohol, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose that it does. It's funny that it stands out to you as something so significant. That that moment was far more about baseball than it was about alcohol. There's something I enjoy about having a beer while I watch a baseball game. It so it was part of how I watch baseball much mm-hmm. more than it was about like the beer itself. Like I don't I really just don't care. It's funny because I will buy uh, like a six pack of beer to hang out with my friends when they come over and we will drink one or two and I'll have like three or four left and they will sit in my fridge for like four months waiting for like the next event where like people come over and I'm like, Hey, would you like to have a beer? Um, It's just, it's, it's much more about the event and the connection than it is about the alcohol. And so it's, it just doesn't even register for me as like a quote unquote sacrifice, except for the fact that like, that's part of how I like to watch baseball, but whatever. I wanted to watch baseball with you and that was more important. So, yeah. Well, and my point here and for my own peers and parishioners who are either in the movement that I'm in or who have been at churches that I'm a part of, let me be clear. If you have a proclivity towards drinking in an unhealthy way. If you are an alcoholic, uh, this part of the conversation is not permission giving for you to go make unhealthy choices. I Mm. do feel like I have to say that uh, because that is not the point that we're making right now. But the point we are making is that even on something that's this sensitive, and and this is a very sensitive issue. I know people's whose lives have been absolutely ravaged by addiction, by alcohol, and often not by choice. It's somebody else's unhealthy relationship with alcohol that was profoundly destructive for them. Sure. And all of that said, on some level, I think this is a good example of something that can be treated like it's a universal. Everybody ought to think the way that I think about this rather than letting it be a particular. This is part of how the people I am a part of express their faith in God. Whether that people may be a local group, that is to say my local church, or I am part of a denomination that takes a formal stand on this and I'm delighted to be a part of that movement. I love being part of that movement and being part of that community. Uh, I know folks who are in that fellowship with me who sign the agreements and paperwork and whatever, and then they just say, well, that doesn't matter, so I'm going to do whatever I want. Again, not what I'm talking about here. That can be my cultural context, and if it is, and I choose to be in that community— then I'm going to honor the commitments that are a part of that. But nevertheless, I think there's something particular here rather than universal. 
I completely agree. And I want to say, just continuing with this topic in particular as a lens through which to understand this, I have grown to appreciate your perspective on this as well. You have impacted the way that I represent my use of alcohol. I very intentionally choose who I'm going to go have a drink with. If there's any suspicion that they are struggling with their use of alcohol, I don't want to make that worse by inviting them to go do so. So I'm very, very choosy on who I consume alcohol with. And then beyond that, you've encouraged me, and I've done this, I have not posted any pictures for years of me with alcohol, because that could be misunderstood. It could be seen as permission by those who struggle. And so there is, again, with the universal, right, this is a particular, and it's not necessarily a universal, but we do need to be mindful of the other expressions and how we can coexist helpfully together. Absolutely. Well, and this is exactly what I think, when I think of this issue of my faith being formed by a specific time in a specific place, I think it is relevant on a podcast in which we are looking at everything through the lens of friendship, because ultimately what I think I find to be important is to have deep, safe, healthy trusting relationships with people who are in different places, different contexts, who maybe are seeing things from a different point of view than I am, because that is ultimately what allows me to distinguish between the universals and the particulars. Oh, that is a really good point. You're right. If we always swim in the same sea, and never interact with anybody else who thinks differently, behaves differently, or whatever, we never have our assumptions challenged. And we never get those aha moments to realize, oh, that's how I'm culturally wired, but not necessarily required to operate that way by the gospel. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think, you know, you you mentioned the Puritans, and I would call the majority of the Puritans— as much as I am deeply influenced by them, I would consider them all to be largely exceptionally narrow-minded. And I think they were free to be narrow-minded because their cultural context was monolithic. Everybody thought, felt, and acted exactly the same way. They didn't have the opportunity to be challenged by people coming from a different cultural context, even minorly. You know, and, and to say you and I are coming from different contexts is almost ironic because <laughs> sure. we are very similar and therefore desperately need to be seeking voices that are very different from us. However, it makes the point on this particular issue because it happens to be one in which our contexts differ, that there is value in perspectives that see things differently in helping us to distinguish between the universal and the particular. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's as I've started to listen to some of those other voices, people that think and operate differently than me, I've really been challenged with my own assumptions. And to take stock of like, 
okay, where where is my starting point? You know, I've seen some of my professors do this both in class and in some of their writings as they lay out in kind of their introduction, these are my assumptions. I am an unashamedly evangelical. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that the Bible is true. These are the things that these are the starting point for entering this conversation from my perspective. And mm. it's really, really important to acknowledge those. And if I sit down and I start listing all of my starting places and how they might not be the same as somebody else's starting place, I think that puts me in a helpful position to listen better. As well as, frankly, to think better about what I think. I am far more aware of what I actually think and believe if I see it in contrast to somebody else. Yeah. I have to say that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to with our Summer in the Psalms series. And I mean this genuinely and not just like as some really wicked awesome segue, but genuinely speaking, as I immerse myself in the biblical thought world, as expressed so beautifully in poetry through these 150 Psalms that we have, I want my own narrative to be challenged. I want to think like the biblical writers, not like a 21st century white, straight American Christian. I I want Mm. those assumptions that I don't know that I have to be challenged by the biblical narrative and the biblical worldview. And obviously, every part of Scripture has the power to do that. But there's something particular about the Psalms that are more evocative, more imaginative. Poetry and art just have a way of drawing some of that out in a way that, you know, prose doesn't. And so I'm really looking forward to that. So I hope that the listeners will join us in that endeavor and will share some of the thoughts that they experience as they dive into the Psalms. Yeah, I can't wait. I totally agree. I mean, one of the profound values of the Bible, uh, again, we focus so often on the divine inspiration and its value in us coming to Scripture, and, and, and I wholeheartedly believe that. But the fact that the Psalms are largely written by a Middle Eastern guy from 3,000 years ago that is a very different context. Yeah. And I am very interested in letting that guy in his relationship with God challenge me and my assumptions about what is and isn't important and how I should and shouldn't respond and what it does and doesn't mean to be faithful and spiritually healthy and spiritually mature. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say spiritually mature because sometimes I think the very plaintive cries to God I wouldn't mark those as spiritually mature. They seem very distraught and I don't know. It's interesting to wrap my head around okay, even some wild cry of anguish or 
supplication or whatever is a spiritually mature response. I just, I, I think I just need to sit with that. And that's why we're spending a summer in the Psalms. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, uh, so for the listeners out there, once again, you can get the reading list on the show notes. You can get the reading list on our Facebook page. And you can follow us to share these thoughts. You can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. Just look for On the Phone with Josh. Come join the conversation. We love hearing from you. We want to round out this experience by hearing from you. So we look forward to interacting with you online. Yeah, we absolutely do. But, you know, what else have you been thinking about? I have been thinking about this idea of time and place. What have you been thinking about? Yeah. So speaking of different cultural voices and getting my own assumptions challenged, I just finished a book by Sho Baraka called He Saw That It Was Good. Really, really good book, but challenging to my own assumptions in so many ways. But rather than give you a whole recap of that book, uh, I just say it's worth reading. But one of these things that he really challenged me on, and I'm still trying to ponder this, He said, we shouldn't try to sanitize the darkness. And so if we are telling the ugly parts of our lives, or if we are telling the ugly parts of the sin that exists in the world, or the hatred that it takes place in the world, or whatever, we shouldn't try to sanitize that. Hmm. Because it stands in such stark contrast to the hope and the redemption and the truth found in Jesus Christ. And Mm. part of his argument is, therefore, if in the telling, the most appropriate word or phrase to describe that darkness is offensive to some, it still has a valid place in the telling. Because that offensiveness belongs in the story. And so if you're describing misogyny and the B word belongs in that story, maybe it shouldn't be edited out. Maybe we need to see the ugliness that is somebody being misogynistic. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel uncomfortable with it. But there is a part of me that just feels the truth of what he's saying. And that's because I work at 911 and I see some of the ugliness of the world. And I say, we have got to tell an honest story about how dark, evil, and depraved sin, sinful humanity really is. We have to tell that story honestly, because if we don't, we will never recognize that same depravity in ourselves and the contrast with the grace and the hope found in Jesus Christ is so great. I I know it's a controversial thought, but that's what's on my mind. No, I think that this is a really valid point, both in describing reality and exploring it as it really is, right? reality is messed up and broken and a wreck sometimes. And to what degree do we 
minimize someone else's pain by sanitizing our description of the world, I think is one of the questions that's important to ask. Sure. And I appreciate the call that he's making. That is clearly consistent with what the Bible is doing, because the Bible has some gross, complicated, messy stories in it. Oh, my word. Yes. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but one of the books in seminary that we studied pretty heavily was Ezekiel in one of my classes. And it is a filthy book. In fact, I think there's a a segment of Judaism that wouldn't allow women to read Ezekiel because it was so lewd and descriptive. It does not hold Mm. back. And I tell you what, it's not going to preach well. I mean, a pastor could get fired just by reading the text. It's so bad. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine the children's Bible that includes the story in which the heroes of the story get an entire city to circumcise themselves so that they can then go in and slaughter them while they're recuperating? Yeah. That's a heck of a thing. It really is. I mean, can you imagine if if that was some local church's approach to solving any problems ever? Oh my gosh, right? Yeah, the 24-hour news cycle would eat that up for time. <laughs> it would be but right like just that that's messy. Yes, messy. That's the that's the right word. Uh sin and The way humanity treats one another is messy, and as ugly as it is, we need to tell that story honestly. Now, whether or not Mm -hmm. an individual chooses to include swear words or the like in that process, I, you know, going with our conversation today, I might make Mm -hmm. the argument that that's a cultural or or particular expression uh, and a choice that somebody would need to make. Absolutely. And maybe those of us who would choose differently should find ourselves that more motivated to listen and understand what somebody else is trying to say. Mm, Good point. Good point. All right. Well, before we get kicked off our own podcast, uh, what else have you been thinking about? You know, I'll be honest, kind of jumping off this word messy, I have had a lot of thoughts this week, but pretty much all of them have been in the context of heavy, messy, or deeply personal conversations that I've had with folks, that really there is no way for me to boil out the personal and the messy from those thoughts. And so if it's all right, I am going to pass on thoughts because I don't feel like this is the right context to share things that are that personal, uh, not Ooh. about myself necessarily, about, but about some of those uh, conversation partners that I've had this week. Man, I respect the heck out of that decision. And it reminds me once again of the sensitive nature of what you do as a pastor, the importance of confidentiality in that work, And the way that those stories continue to resonate with you long after the conversation is done. And so thank you for choosing a better time and place to process those things. And, you know, I'm super 
thrilled that uh, somebody with your restraint is handling those conversations. Well, uh, in in the efforts of bad segues, you know what else <laughs> would be really thrilling. <laughs> All right, make it happen. You just you've you've already you've already stepped in it. Let's go. I can't until you say what. What else would be thrilling? Oh, I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. What? What else? It would also be thrilling if one of us had actually caught a foul ball at a Springfield Cardinals game without getting up from his seat. Which Josh do you think that was? Well, seeing as how I lived that story, that was actually me. I know the Springfield Cardinals are in <laughs> your hometown, but they are. Uh, yeah, we lived there once upon a time as well. And this story goes all the way back to when Shelly and I were dating, and she didn't really love baseball. And I'm like, okay, you have to just at least go to a game because going to a game is way better than watching it on TV and all that stuff. You might actually enjoy it. So we went to a Springfield Cardinals game and that stadium and pretty much all AAA ballparks, you just, every seat is a great seat. So it's oh super goodness, engaging. Yes. Yeah. So it was awesome. We were sitting there, we're having a great time and, you know, we're on a date and, you know, impressing your date is never a bad thing. Right. Uh, and I got <laughs> that amazing moment when somebody hit a foul ball and it careened off of the balcony, which kind of had a, a facing just above us. And so it hits mm-hmm. off of that balcony and then lands on the ground right next to me. And all I did, I wasn't even watching where the foul ball went. I just like suddenly it appeared. And I just reached out my hand and grabbed it after it bounced right next to me. And there it was. I had a foul ball in my hand and it was awesome. I, there was a kid sitting nearby and I just handed it to him. But it was it was like one of those once in a lifetime events and you're just super happy it happened on a date. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, so so you got cachet out of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure to this day. It's the only reason she married me. She's like, well, he caught that foul ball. That's just flat amazing. So. Uh, well, Shelly, if and when you listen to this episode, you can comment and let us know if that is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward <laughs> to recording another episode next week. Are we on for next week? That sounds great. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right. Goodbye. Bye.